Father, thank you so much again for this time. Thank you for all the decisions that have been made. And now, Lord, we just pray and ask you would bless us, that you would speak to us. God, we know it, that just one Sabbath a week in attempting to be a Christian is not enough. But every day we must receive the daily baptism of the Spirit. And so, Father, we pray and ask that you would bless us in a mighty way and teach us, God, the things we need to understand. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. It's wonderful seeing those people get baptized. We have a few more taking place in the coming Sabbaths. And as much as we love to celebrate baptism, the real work begins now. Amen? Amen. This is what determines the strength of a body, whether or not they can work together to keep people growing in the faith. Now, if you say, Pastor, it's up to you to do this, I can only invest, truly invest, in probably about five or six people max. I'm only one person. You could probably only invest in about five or six people max. And if you leave it up to me to do this kind of work, or to Pastor Ted, or just to the Bible worker, we could probably keep about maybe 15 people tops over the course of a year. However, if everybody is doing this great work, ladies and gentlemen, then we will see greater retention and greater growth happening. Amen? Amen. Love what Ellen White says. She says, it is fatal to think that the work of saving souls is dependent upon the minister alone. The word fatal means what? Death. Death. And so that's why it's very important that we take advantage of all these training classes that we're doing, any opportunity that we can get involved, because God wants to do some special things. Amen? All right. Um, is it hot in here or is it just me? Okay, can we have one of the deacons turn the air condition on? It feels like India during the summer. All right. Thank you very much, whoever is doing this work right now. Okay, thank you, Damon. All right. The name of the sermon is called Love Stories in the Bible. Love Stories in the Bible. This is going to be a very unique sermon. You're going to be learning some very interesting things about love stories. You don't need to go to some movie or some uh, theater to learn about the greatest love stories. If you want to learn about love stories, you can go to the Bible and you will be so inspired by what you read. I'm going to be heading out to Loma Linda tonight and uh, I'll be doing a series for about two weeks there at Loma Linda University as well as Campus Hill Church. And part of the morning sessions that I'm going to be doing are called 10 Love Stories in the Bible. Now, do you think that's going to attract a lot of college students? You better believe it is. And so we're doing 10 love stories in the Bible. I'll be starting with Adam and Eve, and I'll be ending with Christ and the bride, or the church. And so I've been studying this out the last few weeks, so I'm going to share some of these studies with you. Something I think was very, very interesting, God has been really speaking regarding his church. All right. Part of the, uh, the presentations that I'll be doing, I'll be dealing with space, I'll be doing, dealing with intelligent design, I'll be dealing with all sorts of things, uh, trying to not give faith, but create room for faith. Sometimes people just don't have enough room for faith, and so reason steps in and is able to produce some kind of flexibility for faith. Now, when it comes to things that deal with, like, what took place millions of years ago or thousands of years ago, ladies and gentlemen, we don't have to have all the answers. We just need to have reasonable ones, right? And when we have reasonable ones, that creates room for faith, creates room with, for faith. I actually knew somebody who was working on the uh, Hubble telescope. 
And it was very interesting. He was able to share some of the most uh, insane pictures of what the Hubble telescope was actually capturing. You know, pictures of distant galaxies. And within those galaxies, thousands of planets that were there. And, you know, this star or that star or nebula, you, you name it. I mean, it is insane. In fact, you'll actually find less atheists in the cosmology department or the astronomy department than you will find in, like, say, uh, molecular science. And the reason why is because as they're able to see the vast expanse of space and all the things that are out there, it is utterly mind-blowing. Now, what is really crazy, I've been actually doing some study on the probability, according to a scientific standpoint, the probability of the universe coming into existence by chance. Now, obviously, we don't believe it's by chance, but imagine if, if we're going from just completely a naturalistic standpoint, a scientific standpoint. Roger Penrose, who actually worked with Stephen Hawking, also written some books, he said this. This is very interesting. Roger Penrose of Oxford University has calculated that the odds of our universe's low entropy condition, in other words, the basic condition for the universe to exist out of chance, Obtaining by chance alone are on the order of one part in 10 to the power, 10 to the power 123. Now you may say, wow, that's impressive, but I don't know what that means. Okay? Now imagine, let's just do a little bit of a fraction. Okay? You place a one over a line, right? And then you take another one underneath the line, and what you do is you add 1,123 zeros after that. Imagine if you were to do, take a decimal point. You would take decimal point, and you would take 1,229 1, zeros, followed by a 1. That is the chance, and this is just based upon one of the top scientists that exists there when it comes to astrophysics, regarding the uh, chances of this universe just coming into existence. Just coming into existence. And what I also did, I did some more research, and I went, okay, I wonder what scientists believe when it comes to the galaxies. The galaxies coming into existence by chance or randomness. And what was amazing, this is what Roger Penrose said as well. The odds of our solar system being formed instantly by the, not galaxy, solar system, by the random collision of particles is one part in 10 to the power, 10 to the power 60. A vast number, but inconceivably smaller than one part in 10 to the power, 10 to the power 123. By the way, if you go to the Powerball lottery jackpot site, do you know what your chances are of winning that lottery ticket? They even put it on the website. It's one out of 175 million of winning a Powerball lottery jackpot. I actually had my friend who's a math teacher down in Delano. He's a math professor at the college there. And I said, can you do some calculations for me? He said, yes. Based upon the Powerball uh, jackpot probability, if you were to win the lottery every month for 10 years straight, out of chance, would you come close to even that number? He did the calculations really quickly and he says, not even close. It is so astronomical, uh, just the probability of the galaxy or the solar system coming into existence, okay? In fact, what is so interesting, uh, 
Hugh Ross, who's well-respected in astrophysics, he says this, and he's a Christian. The results of his calculation, talking about this, this is the results of his calculation, of finding all 123 of his parameters, in other words, the anthropic principles, basic conditions for causing life, or having life exist. Less than one chance in 10 to the 139th power. That's 10,000 trillion, 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 exists that even one such planet would occur anywhere in the universe. Now, if you think that's crazy, you're like, wow, that is so improbable that the universe could come by chance, so improbable that our Earth-like planet could just come about by chance. Wait, take, wait till you take a good look at this. We're talking about enzymes here, okay? By chance, if they were to develop, this is what scientists are saying right now. Dr. Vikram Singh, who is a professor of applied mathematics at Cardiff University, England, he says this. If you look at the composition of the human enzyme, which is the building block of the gene, which is the building block of the cell, the possibility of the human enzyme developing randomly is 1 in 10 to the power of 40,000. Did you catch that? That's 1 in 10 to the power of 40,000. It's more than the number of atoms in the entire universe. You think I'm done? Wait till you see this. This is very interesting. Its simplest extant cell, this is actually by Stephen C. Meyer, who's a well-known intelligent design guy, but he's well-known also in the debating world because he's very, very credible. He's also had many peer-reviewed articles dealing with cellular structures. He says this, the, the mycoplasma genitalium, a tiny bacterium that inhabits the human urinary tract, requires only 482 proteins to perform its necessary functions. If, for the sake of argument, we assume the existence of the 20 biological occurring amino acids which form the building blocks for proteins, the amino acids have to congregate in a def uh, definite specified sequence in order to make something that works. First of all, they have to form a peptide bond, and this seems to only happen about half the time in experiments. Thus, the probability of building a chain of 150 amino acids containing only peptide links is one chance in 10 to the 45th power. Take a good look at this. Now, you may think to yourself, oh, it requires a lot of faith to be a Christian. It requires even more faith to be an atheist. And I don't got that kind of faith. All Jesus requires of me is just a, a little mustard seed, amen? You know what's so interesting? If you were to take this, and I found this analogy, I think that really works well, right? There was a man who actually won a lottery ticket. He was the only winner several years ago. He won $382 million. Imagine that, $382 million minus government taxes, half that amount, okay? Now imagine this. Imagine if that same individual, we'll just call him Ted Bays, okay? We'll say Ted Bays was the winner of that lottery ticket, okay? Say he won that ticket in the month of January. You'd be like, okay, it's possible. You don't know why he's even doing this, but say he did this, right? And he won that jackpot in the month of January. Two months later, he won the exact same jackpot. You would say, wow, that's crazy. Four months later, he wins the exact same jackpot. Six months later, he wins the exact same jackpot. Eight months later, he wins the exact same jackpot. Ten months later, he wins the exact jack same jackpot. What would you begin to assume about ten bays? Wow, he's just a lucky guy. Is that what you assume? What would assume? No, you would say it's rigged. That's precisely what you would say. You would say it's rigged. There's something else going on here. 
See, when you take a good look at these extreme, astronomi prob uh, extreme astronomical probabilities, keep reoccurring and saying, yeah, it's this and this, you know, one and so and so, 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 zero, 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 trillion, trillion, trillions, all the way down to, you know, this. And you would begin to assume after a period of time, wait a minute, it just can't be that random. They're too lucky. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to understand something. And that is this, the Bible already had the answer. Amen? You know, one day I was actually sitting, not too long ago, with a friend of mine who's starting his master's in philosophy. And he's an atheist. We were sitting down having some food. And we started talking about God and the Bible. And he said something very interesting. He said, look, you know I don't believe in any of that stuff. He said, I believe everything occurred through random chances and through just naturalistic causes. He says, this is the way things came about. And I sat down and talked to him and I said, you know what? Here are the options. I said, here are the options. Either everything that exists today came from absolutely nothing, or it came from somebody. I said, when you take a good look at that, which one of these two require faith? He scratched his head and he said, well, both of them. And I said the exact same thing. I said, absolutely, they both require faith. But then I said, which one do you think requires more faith? Something coming from nothing or something coming from someone. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to understand this, that even when you're dealing with a lot of theoretical astrophysics, it begins to become very, very strange. And this is touted as mainstream trusted science. Science is supposed to deal with methodology, not ideology. And what you're finding when it comes to origins, it has to do a lot with ideology. But praise the Lord, God has given us his word. Amen? Take your Bible. Let's go to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. I did an intelligent design paper for my philosophy of science class several months ago. And I made a very interesting argument in there before we jump into our Bible study. I quoted from some well-known astrophysicists, and what they said when they were asked the question, well, what occurred before the Big Bang? And you know what their response was? That there was a singularity, a certain condition where the laws of physics actually broke down. And it's even touted as almost a supernatural state because the laws of physics are broken down. And in this argument I made, I said, well, you either have A, a supernatural condition that produced everything we see today, or you have a supernatural being that has a mind that is able to produce not order out of chaos, but order out of order. And it's very interesting, I got an A, praise the Lord, right? Okay, <laughs> all right. Genesis chapter one, are we all there? Here it is, here it is, Genesis chapter one. You just got a lesson right here in astrophysics. Here it is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the answer. Amen? That everything we see in our world today did not come about through random chances. It did not come about through just insane probability or naturalistic causes. This universe, this world, this existence came about through a mighty God who has created it. And the Bible does not simply prove God's existence. It declares God's existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Now, what's very interesting, when you're looking over Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, oftentimes people have a bit of confusion. They're reading this whole abridged version of Genesis chapter 1 and the creation week all the way down to the, uh, the sixth day. 
And then when they're reading Genesis chapter 2, it seems that God is now creating Adam. And oftentimes people ask themselves the question, wait a minute, are there two separate creations here? No, there is one creation taking place in Genesis chapter 1. God is giving the abridged version of everything that took place of creation in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2 is God's favorite part of creation, and that is mankind. Now what gets very interesting, read Genesis chapter 1. You're going to really like this. Verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And you're thinking to yourself, what does this have to do with the love story? Wait. In the beginning, God created the what? Heavens and the earth. Look at chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Then God said, let there be what? Look at verse 6. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Look at verse 9. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. Look at verse 11. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seeds, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, and seed that is in itself on the earth, which was so. Any time God is creating things in chapter 1, what is the title that is given to the Creator? What? Okay, good. Be firm. You're looking at it. You just read it. I just read it right in front of you, right? God said, let this take place, right? And it took place. Remember what I just said. Everything in chapter 1 is an abridged version of creation, okay? What is chapter 2 about? God's favorite part of creation, and what is that? The cattle? Mankind. In fact, the whole chapter is dedicated to Adam and Eve. That is what it is. Genesis chapter 1, the abridged version of creation. Genesis chapter 2. God's favorite part of creation. Now, I want you to watch the change of title that takes place in chapter 2. Start with verse 4. By the way, Genesis chapter 1 says what? In the beginning what? God created the what? God created the heavens and earth, right? He created the heavens, the earth. Now, I want you to notice the change in the sequence. Chapter 2, starting with verse 4. This is a history of the heavens and the earth which in which they were created in the day the who? Now, watch this. Lord God made the, now watch this next part. Earth and the what? Heavens. Don't miss this point, ladies and gentlemen. This is going to be powerful. Notice this. It's no longer just the heavens and the earth. Now is there, is there some kind of perspective change? Now it's earth and heaven. And what you're seeing is when God touches down on earth. Notice the phraseology that's given. Verse 7. And the who? Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Verse 8, and the what? Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Go all the way to verse 15. Then the who? Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. Look at verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a what? Helper comparable to him. Look at verse 21. And the... Lord God caused a what? Deep sleep to fall on who? Adam, and he slept. He took one of his ribs, closed up the rib in its place. And then the rib in which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a what? Woman, and he brought her to what? Man, notice this change of title that takes place from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 2. There's a change in title. Very intentional by the Holy Spirit. Genesis chapter 1, you see this God who is creating this world, speaking it into existence. And then you see in Genesis chapter 2, God touching down on earth. He's forming man. He's taking man. He's making the garden. He's then putting man to sleep, making Eve. What you see in Genesis chapter 2 is the personal nature of God. 
He's not just God, ladies and gentlemen. He is the Lord God. And by the way, who in all of creation, from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 2, would be able to understand God's definitive role in the universe? The cattle? Only mankind would be able to grasp in a greater way who God was. Do I believe that maybe these animals in some sense gave some kind of glory to God? Yeah, probably. Do I believe the, the, the plants and the roses and the flowers in some way were giving some glory to God? Yeah, absolutely. But one who can understand and appreciate God was Adam. And that's why the Bible's very intentional about this, saying not just God, but the Lord God. The Lord God was part of Adam's life. There was to be a special bond, a special kind of relationship for Adam in which he would recognize the creator's involvement, and thank you very much, the creator's involvement and respect to everything that Adam had. Well, what took place in Genesis chapter 2? When you read Genesis chapter 2, what you begin to discover, you begin to discover there are three things God gave to Adam. Three simple things, and here they are. Number one, Adam's home. First thing he gave to him was the what? What was it called? Garden of Eden. The second thing he gave to him was his what? What was his ministry? Name all the animals. Take care of the animals. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why when you go to the story of the ark, people ask the question, wait a minute, how is it possible for Noah to get all those animals on the ark? He didn't need to get all those animals on the ark. He only needed to get certain ones. And these certain ones were like the parents, the originals. And if Adam could finish in probably one day the naming of the animals, that probably tells you that what God was bringing to Adam was these parents. Maybe his work wasn't done, I'm not sure. Adam's ministry. Now look what else happens. Adam's what? Notice this, where he lived, what he did, and who he was. Now go back to that title we looked at in Genesis chapter 2. What was God's title to Adam? Lord God. Ladies and gentlemen, this is where we start taking to an even personal nature. God is not just interested in being this being that's out there in the universe who's creating this world, this deistic perspective. But this is a God who actually is involved in the interworkings of mankind, the dynamics of existence. And what you are looking at is essentially the three major points of man's life. Three major purposes. Here they are. Adam's home, where he lived. Adam's ministry, what he did. And Adam's family, who he loved. You remove those elements, ladies and gentlemen, you're not a human being. You're not a human being. You're something else. These three elements are so intrinsic to humanity. It defines who we are and makes us who we are. Separate these things out of mankind. Mankind is no longer that which God had created. But it's very intentional, the Lord God. You see, God was not just interested in creating a man and then having him do what he wanted. He wanted to have a special relationship where in all the workings of Adam's life, he could be Lord. He could be the Lord God. You know, in my house, not the house I live in, 
but where I used to live, we had a really messy room. My sister lived there, okay? And uh, she, what she would do, she would buy a bunch of stuff or whatever, and she would just leave it in that room. And the room just was very messy. Everything else was fairly clean. Friends would come over. We'd take them around. We'd make sure that room was closed or locked. People come by, what's in that room? Oh, it's just my sister's room. You don't want to go in. You know, girl's room. You don't want to go in there. Here's the thing, though. Oftentimes, we do that with God. We let him into certain parts of our lives, but we keep other rooms completely away from God. You know, there's many people who come here and they're like, praise the Lord, I'm a Christian, I love going to church on Sabbath. And then they go home, they're like the devil himself. Who you are at home is the best exposure of your character. You want to know why? Because that's your default mode. That's what you do when there's none of these social pressures are around or the pastor's watching. Where you're not teaching Sabbath school and you have to walk around with your Bible. Who you are at home is who you are. When you are relaxed, kick off your shoes, nobody's there, no pastor, no church members. Ah, it's relaxing. Ugh. A few days ago, actually, when I was preaching at an Army Bible camp, I took, did this, a different kind of illustration, took off my shoes, and there were holes in my socks. <laughs> and it was on TV. I had people talk to me later on, offering to buy me new pairs of socks. It's difficult being a preacher sometimes. But here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen, don't miss this point. Where God wants to be Lord first is your home. Do you understand me? This is the first place God wants to start. If you think you can be a Christian only when you're around a lot of people or when you're at church, you are dead wrong because who you are at home will eventually come out. And this is the place God wants us to start is our home, where our relationships are most basic, where who we are, where we are most vulnerable, where when we're tired, and things come out of our mouth that shouldn't. That's who we are when we're home. When we don't feel like doing this and our mind begins just to head in a certain direction and we're just tired and we want to watch TV, what we watch is what we are at home. God was wanting to be not just a, a, a creator who made this. He wanted to step into Adam's home life as well. He even told Adam, guard this home. Guard this home. The second thing he wanted to be part of was Adam's ministry. That could be your work, your career, any way which you are impacting the lives of people. God wanted to be part of that as well. It wasn't just to be categorized for that and then Adam could go do what he wanted. God wanted to step into that part of Adam's life and regulate what Adam did and give him instruction and show him how to succeed. He didn't just want to be God of Adam's life. He wanted to be the Lord God of Adam's life. Which means every room in Adam's house had to be open for God to go in. But ladies and gentlemen, the great thing about God is he will not expose you. He will not expose you. His job is not, or his desire is not to embarrass you because of your weaknesses or your faults. He's not saying, well, you need to talk to the pastor because the whole church needs to know about this. 
God is very kind and understanding of who you are personally and your personal weaknesses. But that's why it's very important to expose that to God, to share that with God, so that he can help you with these things. If we miss this point, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to destroy our witness and our own happiness, eventually. The third thing was Adam's what? Are you telling me God wants to be part of my family life? How many people here have a family? Raise your hand. If you didn't all raise your hand, I just apologize to you on behalf of the series church. You're part of the family. But everyone is here because of a family. You didn't just pop into existence, right? Everyone is here because of a family. You see how Genesis chapter 2 ends? It ends in perhaps one of the greatest impact or influences in Adam's life, his family, specifically his wife. And what he did is he wanted to be part of Adam's marriage. He didn't just want to be a God who said, all right, you guys get married, do your thing, I'm over here. He wanted to be the Lord God. In other words, somebody who was stepping into the center of Adam's marriage. God is not just interested in being on the sidelines, ladies and gentlemen. He wants to be part of every area of your life. And the parts you do not let him be a part of will eventually destroy everything else sooner or later. It's a matter of time. We need to let God in every part of our lives. And we don't need to be afraid he's going to call us to be some missionary in some third world country where we're being chased by some natives. God is wanting to be part of our life and bless us, heal us. Some of us have rooms, some of us have rooms in our house where there is a lot of hurt and pain. And God wants to go inside those rooms to clean them out. Some of us have rooms where the devils themselves are living in there. And they're not leaving after they were invited in originally. Jesus wants to come into those rooms. And he wants to be the Lord of that house. God wants to enter into a very special relationship with every single person here. But that relationship requires you being willing to open every room of your life to him. Whether that be your work, whether that be your home, whether that be your relationships, whatever you do in your personal life, being willing to let God come in and be Lord. And he's very gentle. He won't force himself in there. He will come in, knocking. And when you open the door, he knows what he's doing. He'll come in very kind, loving, place his hands on you. He says, I understand what's going on here, but I can help. We don't have to be afraid of Jesus, ladies and gentlemen. He's tender and compassionate with our weaknesses. But the goal is to let him come into every single room, whether it be our work, whether it be our school, whether it be our ministry, whether it be our family, letting Jesus come in and being the Lord God. And that special covenant relationship which makes it so distinct from animals or plant life or organic material allowing God that access. You know, I call this love stories in the Bible. God wants to be the Lord God part of your relationships. Amen? The Lord God in your relationships. You know, marriage is a very special thing. Amen? And we can only address one part here tonight. Maybe in future sermons we'll address the other two. 
But when it comes to your marriage life, the scriptures have much to say. And instead of going to some self-help books right away, we should see what the Word of God teaches about the fundamental principles of making your marriages happy and allowing Jesus to be the Lord God. Take your Bible. Let's go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. There's something that is addressed to husbands and to wives. You may not be a husband or a wife, but you may be one in the future, or maybe you were one in the past. Either way, you can share this knowledge with somebody else. Ephesians chapter 5, you're there going to say amen? amen? Amen. Galatians, Ephesians chapter 5. I love Ephesians chapter 3 because it deals with a lot of the, the principles of deep, holy love. And then what you see in chapter 4 and chapter 5 is how that love is applicable to the family. Take a good look at chapter 5, starting with verse 25. Husbands. Who's Paul speaking to? Husbands. How many husbands do we have here? Raise your hand. All right. You're up first for the shooting line. Okay. Husbands. What's that next word? Love your what? Wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. What is Paul's instruction to husbands to primarily do in their relationships? Love. Now what is the analogy or the comparison? What does he compare that love to so we understand what that kind of love God is calling us to do? Very good. Look what it says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for what? So what is the first principle we're introduced about the way the, that husbands should love their wives? It should be a sacrificial, unconditional kind of love. Now go to the very end of chapter 5. Go to verse 33. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own what? Wife as himself and let the what? Wife see that she what? Respects her what? Now, what are wives called to do? You know what I noticed? Paul didn't give an analogy there. He's probably wise to do that. <laughs> but notice this. Wives are given a very special kind of principle in the way they're to conduct their relationships with their husbands, which is to what? Respect. Now, let me ask you a question. Are husbands supposed to respect their wives, yes or no? No. The Bible just says to love her. Of course you are, right? Are wives supposed to love their husband? Husbands. Husbands. Wives. Husbands. Yes, plural. They're supposed to do both, but Paul hones in on love and respect. You know, I was doing some research on this. You know what's so interesting about this? And one writer put it this way. He said it so brilliantly. He said this. The reasons why husbands are told to love their wives is because if they're not loving their wives... Or if they not, uh, when they don't receive, let me put it this way, when they are not receiving respect from their wives, they stop loving their wife. And when wives stop receiving love from their husbands, they start disrespecting them. And we know couples like that, right? 
Let me just tell you something. As a pastor, sometimes couples will come and talk to me, and I have these kinds of, these are what I call the most awkward moments, okay? They'll come in, they're like, Pastor, we just want to talk to you, go out to eat. We're like, all right, let's go out to eat. We'll get some food and something like that. And we're just talking, having a good time. I feel like a fifth wheel, but we're talking, and we're there. And all of a sudden, something will take place right between the husband and wife, and it's almost this moment where you're just like, I don't want, know what to do. I need to leave, okay? It'll go something like this. The husband will talking, and he's like, yeah, my wife's a little bit crazy. And the wife says, what did you just say? And the husband says, I'm not going to worry about it. And she then says, no, I am going to worry about it. And you're sitting there, and you're just like, this is an awkward moment right now. And they just start staring at each other. You know what I'm talking about? Any of you have those circumstances happen in front of you before? Try being a pastor. I see it all the time. Those moments, I'm just like, I need to leave you guys alone right now. But here's the thing. We need to understand something. Paul here is pointing in on some, honing in on something, and that is this. That husbands need to love their wives as Christ loves. The word love implies a kind of nourishing. Paul even says, love your wife as you love your body. And you nourish your body. You're tender with your body. You take care of your body. You don't just say, well, here's my body, and you just run right into this podium. You don't mistreat your body. Right? You take care of your body. You shower, hopefully. (laughs) You eat. When you're tired, you like to give your body sleep. You make sure there's clean clothes on your body. Right? If you're hurt, what do you do to your body? You put a band-aid on it, band-aid on it, right? Some ointment. Ladies and gentlemen, you take care of your body well. And so what Paul is teaching men is you need to learn to become more encouraging and affirming of your wives. And then Paul hones in on the women, and what he begins to teach them about respect is to help men under, or let men know that they are appreciated, they are loved, and they're doing an awesome job. Because one thing men are really sensitive to is not so much when they're being unloved, but when they're being disrespected. Do you know what I'm talking about, men? Say amen if you know what I'm talking about. And it works both ways, doesn't it? See, in order to allow the Lord God to be the Lord God in your relationship, you need to ask yourself, have I been abiding by these principles in my marriage relationship? Or has it started to become toxic where I'd rather be on a rooftop than deal with a contentious woman? Ladies and gentlemen, we're called to re-examine these things because God wants to be part of your marriage relationship and bless it. I know there's been many kinds of factors in people's relationships, things that most people don't even know about. I, I get that part. I get the part that there may be hurt from long ago. There might have been adultery in the past. I get those things. But that's the past. Today is a new day. And if you believe this is the way God has, wants us to be together, we're not talking about abusive relationships, ladies and gentlemen, that take place between married, couple, married couples. We're talking about two people who are married and struggling with each other. I love what Ellen White says right here. She says it so well. This is like the best advice. Though difficulties, perplexities, and discouragements may arise, let neither husband nor wife harbor the thought that their union is a what? Is a what? Is a mistake. I guess he wasn't the man I was supposed to marry. Don't harbor those kinds of thoughts. This is practical advice. If you're married, 
Again, we're not talking about abuse or other kinds of factors. We're talking about people struggling, trying to understand their marriage. How can they best glorify God? Don't start thinking to yourself, well, this was a mistake. It shouldn't have happened. It might have been a mistake, but you're in there now. Amen? Amen. And you've got to work through this, this situation now. Look what else she says right here. Let neither husband nor wife harbor the thought that their union is a mistake or disappointment. Not just a mistake now, it's a disappointment. Oh, this is the sad area of my life. When I go to my house, that's when the sun is eclipsed by the moon or the clouds are over my house. No, no, no. You are not to think of your marriage as a place of disappointment. You need to take out those perspectives. Then look what she says right here, super practical. Determined to be all that is possible to be to each other. And I love this phrase right here, continue the early what? Do you know what that means? Okay, some man, please tell me what that means. Steve Tatum, why don't you tell me what that means? Pretend you're still dating. Yes, Jan. Okay. See how you won Vanita? You think of only her. Huh? Okay, very good. Now, I want you husbands to go back to the time where you first laid eyes on your wife. And that time where you were trying to gain her affection. Like a peacock, your male peacock, you're spreading out your feathers. What is something you did to win her heart? I'm going to call some male out right now. Mario Fembres, what did you do to win your wife's heart? You made her cards? You drew pictures. How old were you? <laughs> How old? 22. I'm going to call you out, Mario, since you're one of my elders. Does he still do that for you? Oh, man. Mario, you know, you know what, what you need to work on, right? Okay. Mr. Crandall, is that your name? Very good. You're wondering how I know, memorized your name. Don't worry about it. I'll tell you sometime in the future. Okay? Okay? You just pointed right at her. Okay? Does he still point at you like you're all that? He still does. Oh, praise the Lord. Amen. Mario, you need to learn. <laughs> Any other male, what did you do when you first won your wife's heart? Come on. I know there's some studs here. I've talked to some of you guys here. All right, Frank. A Barry White album and a Big C's candy heart. The biggest kind. When's the last time you did that for your wife? <laughs> Joe, what did you do to win your wife's heart? You're not playing games with her, right? So how'd you show that? You really enjoyed, you really communicated that you love being around her. Michael, does he still do that? Yeah. Oh, wow. Brian Lenzner, what did you do to win your wife's heart? You shared dessert with her once. Okay, and that, that was it for you, huh? You were slain, right? That was good, okay. Big for you or big for her? For you, okay. What else did you do to win your wife's heart? That was enough. That was enough. <laughs> Men, you got an example right here. Do you still do that? <laughs> Goodness. Let's go back to that right there. <laughs> Continue the early attentions. And wives, this is extremely important. When your husband 
tries to do this, say he tries to fit in some old marine outfit that doesn't fit him anymore and he comes to you with roses, don't disrespect him and laugh at him. You know what I mean? He shows up in some ancient convertible and says, let's go out to Olive Garden, whatever. Don't just laugh at him. He's attempting to do something. Women, amen? Amen. amen. Now, would you love for your husbands to continue the early attentions? Oh, that doesn't really sound like you guys are interested anymore. Would you love for them to continue the early attentions? Amen. Look what else she says right here. In every way, encourage each other in fighting the battles of life. Study, now notice this, study to advance the happiness of who? Each other. Let there be mutual love, mutual forbearance, a kind of toleration, kind of an acceptance. Okay, I know my wife's in this stage right now, and I have to be tolerable of that. I can't keep trying to correct her problems. Sometimes I just have to sit and hold her. This is super important to understand. You know, I one time looked at this meme. You guys know what a meme is? It's those little cartoons. And it said this, a book written to understand men. And it looked like the size of a globe pamphlet. And then it says, a book written to understand women. And there was like the stacks of encyclopedias. The greatest thing you can do is not, <laughs> not give, listen to me, don't always be quick to give propositional answers to the problem. Sometimes you just have to listen and hold and nurture them. You're like, how do you know this? Because I've seen enough people. I've observed enough people. I've had wonderful mentors in my life who have displayed this in their own lives, and I've seen their marriages be successful inside and out. Let there be mutual love, mutual forbearance. Then marriage, instead of being the end of love, will be as the, were the it were the very beginning of what? Love. Oftentimes we, we think to ourselves, now that the marriage has, we got married, we, we have kids, now this is what marriage is. And this is the part where they start telling all the single people, you don't need to get married. I'm right, I'm telling the truth right now, huh? But she says something so extraordinary that this part doesn't have to be the end, it could actually be the beginning of something that continues to grow. More and more. In fact, when Jesus came to that first wedding, do you remember what took place? Do you remember what the master of the feast says? He says, normally in weddings, people put the best out first and then the worst come out at the end. But he says, this one's different because you guys put some good stuff out and now the best one's still coming. And that's the principle when you allow the Lord God to step into your relationships. And you start following his ways and his methods. The method, ladies and gentlemen, is just as important as the message of Christ. Sometimes we bifurcate that and just say, well, yeah, this is the message of Christ and you're going to get it Lucifer way, the devil's way. I'm going to communicate it that way. Wrong. It's distorted if you communicate it outside the spirit of Christ. Then it will be as the very beginning of love, the warmth of true friendship, the love that binds heart to heart. Now look at this. Is a foretaste of the joys of marriage. Ladies and gentlemen, our God wants to be part of our relationships. He wants to be part of marriage relationships. He wants to step in. He doesn't just want to be a God who has created it and is not interested anymore. 
He wants to be invited in. Because your life, your relationship will become a powerful witness to this world about the love of God. People do not have a visible picture of Christ. The only visible picture of Christ is seen in your relationships, who you are and what you do. Don't look to me. I'm an imperfect man. You need to look to Jesus as that standard of righteousness. And as you continue to look at that standard, make sure your spouse is there with you. The creator of the universe is more than just a creator. He's a personal God, the Lord God, who wants to be Lord in your life. And smooth out those rough edges that are existing. But he can only come in if you allow him. And with one, one philosopher said, he said this, God has made the facts of freedom, but it's mankind that is given the privilege to commit the acts of freedom. When you allow God that choice to come in, to be more than just God or some propositional truths, but you allow a personal encounter with Jesus, a personal welcoming me in, you will see things begin to change and you will find in the end, it's not the end, but the beginning of a whole new story. How many people love God to be more than just God, but Lord God in your life today? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, there's so much to still soak in but right now, Lord, we're just praying and asking that we would be still and let the Word of God take root. Thank you, Father, for today. May we go out and do those things that we have learned. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.